thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. 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 Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Space. Time. Brain. Life. The universe. Today you join me and a host of other medical consultants in this very special edition of the programme as we go under the knife and attempt to dissect the process of the post-mortem. To take off the front of the rib cage and the breastbone, we're going to need to use some shears. So what happens in a mortuary? How do pathologists determine a cause of death? And why do we even do autopsies in the first place? I'm Chris Smith... And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Before we ventured into the mortuary, I wanted to learn more about the history of the post-mortem and how the process has changed over time. So I spoke to consultant histopathologist and president of the Royal College of Pathologists, Susie Lishman. Well, for centuries, it wasn't allowed um, at all. It was against people's religion or against their cultural beliefs. Certainly, it wasn't seen as something that was desirable over the years. For example, postmortems have been used as part of the punishment that criminals have. So if they were executed, for example, perhaps their body would then be donated for dissection and for teaching purposes. So I think although the value of the postmortem was recognised, it wasn't something that anybody would volunteer to. To have done. And when did the law change and people decide, well, well, it's pretty important to know why someone's died, we're going to make this part of that process? In the last hundred years or so, it's become increasingly clear that post-mortem examinations reveal a huge amount of information and so they've become increasingly accepted and at some points and in some places it's become absolutely normal that if you die in a particular hospital or if you die following surgery, then it's standard practice that you have a post-mortem examination. Quite stigmatised though, isn't it? A lot of people are quite uh, suspicious or concerned or worried by the prospect of of a loved one having a post-mortem. Is that because of its historical underpinnings? I think the history of postmortems hasn't helped. So if postmortems were seen as a punishment or something that was only done to you when you had no say in it, then obviously people are going to be suspicious and not want to have it done. But I think there are quite a few misconceptions about postmortems. They're actually really just like I've often referred to it as the final operation. So it's like having surgery in an operating theatre, except you haven't got all those machines trying to keep you alive. So it's completely respectful. The Post-mortem is done in a standardised way and people are treated with, with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And pathologists never forget that the person they're examining is somebody's loved one, someone's son, someone's father, someone's mother. And um, I think the public don't always appreciate that. And I think some of the media and perhaps horror films don't help at all because people see post-mortems as something that's gory and bloody. But that's not reality at all. Susie Lishman. And I hope that what we're going to reveal to you in this programme will help you 
to appreciate and understand the post-mortem process the way that I do. I'm not lying when I say that some of the most important medicine that I learned was picked up in the post-mortem room. Because when you see how different diseases affect a person's organs and tissues, it gives you a totally new insight into how different conditions present in living patients and how to diagnose and manage them much better. Now, please note, from here onwards, this programme presents a real post-mortem. The case was sent in by Her Majesty's coroner after the patient died at home and his own doctor felt that he was unable to state the cause of death. Conducting the post-mortem was Dr Alison Cluro, a consultant pathologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. This is a gentleman in his eighth decade of life. He had a history of ischemic heart disease, so this means that he had hardening of the coronary arteries that supply his heart, uh, so he was at risk of having a heart attack. He had a history of a condition called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is where the lungs may have either bronchitis or a condition called emphysema, which can be related to smoking. And on the background of that, a condition called pulmonary hypertension, where because of the lung disease, the heart begins to fail, trying to pump blood through these diseased lungs. He also had a history of type 2 diabetes, which was treated with medication rather than insulin injections. Is there anything else in terms of information that you're given that might inform something you go looking for? Do you learn about the occupation of a person or where they lived, where they came from, that kind of thing, that, that might bias your thinking in terms of, well, I should look for X, Y or Z? Well, we also know that there's a possibility that this man may have been exposed to asbestos in the past. So given that history in combination with lung disease, we would want to make sure that this wasn't an industrial-acquired lung disease related to inhalation of asbestos fibres. So having acquainted yourself with, with this gentleman, what happened to him in the past, his past medical history and also his occupational history, what do you do next? So my next procedure is to examine him externally in the first instance to see if there are any clues and to make sure that I am about to autopsy the correct person. Should we do that? Yes. On examination, he has several significant findings. In particular, he has a condition called clubbing of the fingernails and of the toenails. This condition is commonly seen in people with chronic lung diseases. They do indeed look almost like the end of a drumstick. When you get to the end where the drumstick hits the surface of the drum, it's a sort of rounded curve shape. It's not the normal shape of a fingernail, and all of his fingers look like that. Yes, the whole nail curves round, and you see this in the toes to a lesser extent, but it's much more obvious in the fingernails. The other significant finding on external examination is that he has uh, swelling of his lower legs, a condition that we describe medically as pitting edema. So the lower legs right up to the knees are swollen and I can actually indent the tissues because he has fluid in those tissues. You've pressed just gently over the skin of his shin and you've left a finger impression there which sits there for a little while, rather like a footprint in sand. And then it slowly comes back out again, and that's because of fluid? That's fluid retention in the tissues. Anything else? He has some um, areas of hemorrhagic bruising and some areas of skin tearing on his upper arms. I'm just wondering, although I don't have this information quite to hand, whether he has had some steroid treatment for his chronic airways disease. Steroid treatment long-term can cause thinning of the skin, and in this instance, it's 
it's quite possible that the injuries we're seeing are related to him having very fragile skin subsequent to him having been on long-term steroid therapy for his lung disease. Now with me in the studio uh, to unpick some of these external clues are Dr James Rudd, he's a cardiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital and a senior lecturer at Cambridge University. Also Dr Helen Simpson, she's an endocrinologist, someone who understands how the body's endocrine glands work. And also Dr Prina Ruparelia, who's a respiratory consultant, also from Addenbrooke's. Now Prina, Alison mentioned steroid treatment there. What is chronic obstructive airways disease? It's really an umbrella term. It's generally related to smoking. The smoking causes inflammation in the airways, which damages the alveoli, which are the air sacs, and it causes bronchitis, which is production of excess mucus. So the people that have this condition will often have a cough and they will have symptoms of breathlessness. What about the hands? Because one of the other things we spotted was that his fingers have this this characteristic clubbing. How common is that and why does that happen, do we know? The actual mechanism is not really clear, but it's often a sign of another condition in the body. So when we're looking at lung conditions, it can be a sign of what we call a suppurative lung condition, which means a pus-forming lung condition, such as a lung abscess or cystic fibrosis. And how common is this sort of presentation with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? Is this a common phenomenon? So you wouldn't see clobbing in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so there must be something else that is causing that. So we've still got something to look for. We know that COPD isn't the only thing going on in this gentleman, then, based on what you've told us. Helen, we know that the gentleman had type 2 diabetes. What is type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes is the most common cause of diabetes with about 90% of people in the UK who have diabetes having type 2 diabetes. And it's where the body gets insulin resistant or can't react so well to insulin that the body makes and is what we think of as being related to obesity and a more sedentary lifestyle. This gentleman wasn't particularly overweight. Is that a common way for diabetes to present then or do some people start a bit overweight and then become thinner? So when you are diagnosed with diabetes, one of the symptoms can be weight loss, so becoming very thirsty, passing a lot of urine and losing weight. So we don't know how long he had diabetes. If it was a new diagnosis, he may have been losing weight or could have lost weight from another underlying pathology or condition. The other thing is he was been taking steroid tablets. This can actually also cause type 2 diabetes be a drug cause and that may have been accounting for some of the sugar problems. Ah, right. So he could have a diabetic problem because of the steroids he was taking for his chest problem. He could have, yes. Why should it be bad to have high blood sugar? Why is that a problem? So it can cause some symptoms in itself. So it can make you feel thirsty, pass too much urine, can lose some weight, can cause some problems with the vision, the lens and the eye can get a little bit cloudy. But also it leads to long-term complications, and this is, we split these into the medical word macrovascular, so big blood vessel complications and small blood vessel complications. People with type 2 diabetes are five times more likely to die of heart problems or vascular problems uh, than the general population without diabetes. James, Helen has mentioned that diabetic patients are at greater risk of damage to their blood vessels. What's the relevance here? This gentleman has a history of heart failure. Why might this be relevant? And also, what's the basis for the pitting edema, the skin changes that Alison remarked on? So diabetes, uh, as you've said, Chris, uh, is associated with high levels of, uh, of glucose in the bloodstream. 
and this can damage the inside of the arteries, causing a process we call atherosclerosis. If the uh, arteries to the heart have been narrowed by atherosclerosis, the pumping power of the heart is reduced, and this can mean that blood can build up in tissues of the body where it normally wouldn't accumulate. So, for example, patients can get swelling of the legs. The high pressure, what pushes fluid out of the blood vessels and into the tissue, and that's why you get swelling. And, uh, and that's why when we put our fingers on the skin, we could make those little indentations because we were literally pushing fluid out of the way. That's exactly right. The condition is called heart failure. If the patient's heart failure is treated, then we often use the amount of peripheral edema, the amount of swelling of the legs, as a sign that the treatment is working. This will tend to get better over a few days or weeks. James Rudd. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Now we've examined the patient's external appearance for clues as to the cause of death, it's time for us to see what the internal organs can reveal. So pathologist Alison Cluro and I began by opening up the patient and looking into the abdomen. When one looks at a textbook and you see a, a person drawn, you can see these very organised loops of bowel. But this does not look organised. Just before we've even moved anything around, there, there seems to be stuff everywhere. Yes, I think it's probably a little bit like a, a personal fingerprint. You know, no one's is probably quite the same, but you're right, it doesn't look anything like the textbooks. Do you preserve the contents of what's in the intestine? Yes, so what you're seeing here now is the technician is actually tying off the base of the stomach where it goes into the first part of the small intestine, and that's to preserve the stomach contents. Should we need to analyse it Sometimes we do in a case where we are suspicious that the person might have taken an overdose, for example. What you have in front of you, Alison, is a little table that you've put over the gentleman's legs. And on top of that table, you're now putting each of the things that we have removed from inside his body. And so now this is the process where you're beginning to look at each of the organs in turn to step through them and see if there's anything in there. That's right. So... With my scissors, I'm cutting down the gullet and into the stomach. There's quite a lot of brown liquid in the stomach, uh, and this is just likely to be fluid that the deceased gentleman has had prior to death. And the striking thing is that you can see there's sort of little black spotty areas over the lining of the stomach here. Uh, The lining is a sort of pale grey colour, and in some places... It's not grey, it's like it's got a rash, a very fine red rash. Exactly. Why is that? So I think this gentleman has some gastric erosions. So these are very superficial damage to the lining of his stomach. That mucus layer, when it breaks down, leads to the stomach acids to be able to actually get to the lining of the stomach wall and um, cause ulceration and hence gastric ulcers. That's not uncommon in people who are very unwell. We're going to move to some of the other abdominal organs now. And the first one I've got here to look at is the pancreas. Now, the pancreas lies just behind the stomach, and it is an endocrine organ that is an organ that produces hormones. It does two things, actually. It produces insulin, which obviously is useful in uh, controlling our metabolism of sugars. And insulin is a a substance that is in uh, short supply in people with type 1 diabetes where they're insulin-dependent and need to have daily injections. It's, what, 15, 20 centimetres long, this one, isn't it? And it's got a sort of bulbous end, a fist-size end, and then a tail coming off that that's a few centimetres across. And you've 
cut slices from one end to the other right across it. What are you looking for? Uh, pancreatitis, inflammation of the pancreas can be seen in people with gallstones, people who are heavy drinkers, but this pancreas looks quite normal. Put that to one side. We've got the two kidneys, which are surrounded by a huge casing of fat. You can see, that when I take this fat off, you'll be surprised at how small the little kidneys are in size. Is, is it normal for the kidneys to be encased in this yes, much fat? they're always encased in fat, and that's partly a protective process. We can see going into the kidney is an artery. That's how the blood gets in, off of the aorta. And, and then the vein comes out, and then anything that you don't want... You want to keep the blood, obviously, the urine, that goes down that ureter down towards the bladder. So you've got the kidney out on one side. Now you're doing the same thing on the other side. They have an interesting external appearance. There is a small cyst. Not uncommon to get small cysts in the kidney. They're quite harmless if there's just one or two. We have a mixture of surface appearances. We have a very fine granularity to the surface. It should be very, very smooth, but it isn't. And then we have these much coarser indentations or scars on the surface. So we're seeing two slightly different things there. The fine granularity is something that you tend to see in people who have high blood pressure. What, what about the, the scars that you mentioned? There's, there's a very big one. It looks like a crater on the moon, actually. What's that? So that is likely related to chronic infection and inflammation and it's likely that this gentleman has had infection, probably arising from bladder infections. It's left that legacy of the, the structural damage to the kidney, but that's old, there's no evidence of that being an active infection? No, the only thing that we have is we have some thinning of the cortex, that's the outer portion of the kidney tissue, and that thinning is a feature of the high blood pressure, the coarse scarring related to previous episodes of infection, but we don't have anything else at the moment active that's going on in those kidneys. So not a huge number of clues there, at least not to the acute cause of death yet. Now Alison did talk though, James, about high blood pressure. Why is that a problem? So in a similar way to diabetes, the presence of high pressure blood within the system can also damage the internal lining of the arteries. And again, this can lead to hardening of the arteries over many years, particularly if the high blood pressure is not treated. Why does it cause that thinning of the outer surface of the kidney that Alison mentioned there? Do we know? It's due to, I think, the same reason as we get the problems with the heart, that the blood supply to the kidney itself is reduced chronically because the arteries supplying the kidney with blood are narrowed down. And it's this long-term reduction in adequate blood supply that leads to thinning of the cortex of the kidney. If someone has high blood pressure, what symptoms would they have had? This is one of the problems with having high blood pressure. Very often it causes no symptoms at all. And this is the reason that GPs are very keen always to measure one's blood pressure when we go to the surgery. By the time it causes things like heart attacks and strokes and kidney problems, the high blood pressure may have been there for 20 or 30 years. And what can someone do to control their blood pressure? The best thing to do is to avoid things like smoking, to take regular exercise, try and eat a healthy diet, so eat not so much red meat, plenty of fish, plenty of vegetables and fruit, and to get your blood pressure checked every year or so once you get to the age of 40. If lifestyle measures don't work, then the next step would be drug medications. And Helen, we spotted that there was this damage to the surface of the kidney. Alison speculated that this could have been because the gentleman being diabetic was more prone to infections and possibly kidney infections. Would you go along with that? People with diabetes are 
prone to some types of infections. And one particular site where people may get more infections is in their feet, partly due to the damage in the nerves. People can injure their feet, not know. The blood supply can be reduced, so the cells that fight infection are slower to get there. And also if the sugar levels are high, it may be there's a better sort of culture medium for the bugs to grow in. So certainly we see increased levels of infections in feet and ulcers. As for the kidneys, I'm not sure we see an awful lot of extra kidney infections themselves in people with diabetes, but I suppose you could speculate that if the sugar levels were high and there was some injury there, it may be a good focus for an infection to develop. Helen Simpson. Next on the list of organs to check was the bladder and prostate, especially given the scarring we'd seen in the kidneys. Back to the post-mortem room. So I'm now going to look at the prostate gland, which is the sort of rubbery gland that sits just at the base of the bladder. So the prostate, thats I can see that, that's about the size what, of, a, of a walnut. And sitting around the tube, I presume that's the urethra, the tube that comes out of the bladder, so the urine can get out. That's quite correct. That urethra tube passes straight through the middle of the prostate gland. And that's where you have a problem if you've got an enlarged prostate and it gets swollen up it actually nips off that urethra, and so people have trouble passing urine. We mentioned we'd seen evidence of past infection in the kidney. Yes. That would have come from the bladder. So is the bladder normal to your eye, though? It is. I mean, there's a tiny bit of hemorrhage down here near the entrance to the prostate gland, but I actually think that that's related to the fact that there was a catheter in place. Now what I've done is I've separated off all the organs, but I think at this point we might just let the technician take over for a moment and... Um, dissect back the scalp tissues so that we can actually get the brain for a good examination as well. So we've now taken the top of the skull bone off and you can see underneath the brain, which looks, looks a bit like a bag of worms. So the, the brain has come out in its entirety in one go. You can see at the bottom where it would be connected down to the spinal cord and then up to the top, the bit that would actually sit inside your head. I am looking at the underside of the brain. We've got the what we call the cerebellum. This is the little bit of the brain that deals with balance. You can see a cord of white tissue hanging over the top of that. That's the spinal cord, and then the brain stem just above it. So the cerebellum's about the size of my fist, yes. give or take, underneath the brain. Yes. Then the brain stem, that's what connects the spinal cord up into the, the main part of what I would like to call the brain proper. Yes, that's right. And, and, and here you can see these two little structures here. These are the optic nerves. The There's a sort of... The, like the, sort they're of poking feet. out from the middle of the brain. Yes, and we just separate those from the point where they run through the skull and into the backs of the eyes. It's interesting because it's, it's grey round the outside and white in the middle, so there is quite literally grey matter in your oh, head. Exactly. Grey matter is where the little grey cells live, and they are the neurons uh, that fire off the impulses that allow us to do all the things we do. And the white matter sitting underneath that is the axon. And that axon, the reason it looks white is it's surrounded by a substance called myelin, which protects it and allows the impulses to pass straight down the axon rather than them shooting off in different directions. So that's why you're seeing these two different contrasting areas of colour when we're slicing the brain here. 
So underneath the grey and the white matter, we have these spaces. In, it, right in the heart of the brain, right there, are, the there are big the holes, but they're quite normal. Absolutely. These are called ventricles, and these contain cerebrospinal fluid. And cerebrospinal fluid it, it cushions the brain. It surrounds the brain, and it's within the brain. So the brain is sort of floating within a bath, and that acts as a sort of bit of a protection for any sudden movements. It slows the movements down. Like a shock absorber. Nothing abnormal coming up so far in here? No, this brain actually looks very, very normal. So we put the brain to one side. The other organ that we haven't yet looked at from the abdomen is the spleen. Now, what I would say about the spleen is it's very soft. Uh, and, and I think the reason for that is that there is evidence of infection. Sometimes you can find at autopsy that there is a softening or a sort of liquefaction, a liquefying of the tissue of the spleen. And I think we have got a clue here to one of the reasons why this gentleman has died. Which organ should we look at next? So I'm going to just open the gallbladder and drain away the bile. And the liver makes bile, doesn't it? The liver makes the bile, yes. Nothing to worry about in the gallbladder, but something of considerable concern in this gentleman's liver. What we can see here are white bumps all over it, up to, you know, two to three centimetres in areas. And these are tumour deposits that have extensively spread to involve the liver. It's literally covered. If we look at how much of the liver is what should be normal, healthy liver tissue and how much is the cancer, I'd say that maybe half this person's liver is now taken up by these big blobs of tumour. Yes, I would say you're right. About 50% has been replaced by tumour. We can see the background liver. This is the brown tissue between the white nodules. And the background liver is also abnormal, in fact. It's got a very congested pattern, which we would call a nutmeg pattern. And nutmeg liver is seen when someone has a condition of congestive heart failure where the right side of the heart is failing, causes this back pressure on the veins, and that back pressure causes congestion uh, within the organs that need to drain into the right side of the heart. So what you're seeing here when you see this nutmeg appearance is you're seeing normal bits of brown liver and then much darker areas of very congested liver and congested blood vessels. These tumours then, the fact that the, the liver is full of them and they range in size, there are some small ones and some big ones, does that tell you that they didn't come originally from the liver? They've probably come into the liver from somewhere else in the body? I think it's more likely that these are what we would call metastasis. That means they've spread from somewhere else. The liver is not the primary site of the tumour. I mean, obviously now we've certainly got a malignant process uh, in this gentleman which is likely to have contributed to his death. Also with us is Dr Hugo Ford, who's a consultant oncologist or cancer specialist at Adam Brooks Hospital. When someone actually gets a cancer, why have they got cancer? What has happened to their cells to make them behave in this abnormal way? Well, most commonly there's some form of damage to the DNA in the cells, and this can come from an external source, or it can come from the normal process of cell division and a mutation, which is an error in the replication when your cells are dividing. It's like a genetic spelling mistake. Like a genetic in. spelling mistake, and these tend to accumulate, and all of our cells' DNA has, on the end of it, something called a telomere. And every time you copy that DNA, a little bit of the telomere gets cut off. They only have a certain number of cell divisions before you reach the end of the telomere, and that triggers the cell to die. In cancer cells, they manage to immortalise themselves by lengthening those telomeres. So the telomere effectively doesn't shorten, and therefore there is no trigger 
that tells your body that this is a cell that's reached the end of its life and it needs to die. So it carries on growing. So they are immortal, and that is one of the key characteristics of many cancer cells. Is the liver a common site for cancers to spread to? Uh, Yes, it's one of the most common sites for cancers to spread to, in fact. Why? The general way by which cancer cells spread through is through the bloodstream, and that's certainly one of the most common ways. And they do tend to lodge in places where there are filters for the bloodstream. So we commonly see the liver, which is a major site of filtration of the blood, uh, the lungs also is a high volume of blood throw through the lungs, and, and often the bones as well. And is it just physically the spread to somewhere else in the body and the growth in an, another place in the body that makes cancer bad, or can it do other things to you biochemically and so on? Cancers can cause problems kind invading into various tissues that cause damage, but they can make hormones which can cause endocrine problems, for example, or they can produce antibodies which causes uh, inflammation or damage to particular parts of the body. So there are a number of ways in which cancers can damage the body other than the direct invasion. If you pick up a cancer that's already spread, what can one do then to work out what the prognosis is for that person? Well, the important thing is to find out exactly what one's dealing with. So a a biopsy is usually very helpful, and that's taking a sample of tissue from the cancer, looking at it under the microscope and trying to identify what its characteristics are. Now, that may help you as to where it's come from, but it may also help help guide you as to the prognosis of the cancer and the tumour and how you might wish to treat it. Hugo Ford. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. This week, we're conducting a post-mortem on a patient in his 70s whose cause of death couldn't be determined. He'd had a history of heart and lung problems, but also exposure to asbestos in the past. We found some evidence of infection in his spleen and some cancerous growths in the liver, which appear to have spread from somewhere else. With us in the studio are a panel of doctors, including cancer specialist Hugo Ford, cardiologist James Rudd, endocrinologist, which means hormone specialist, Helen Simpson, and respiratory consultant Prina Riparelia. They're all from Addenbrooke's Hospital. Now, to see if we can find the source of these tumours, we need to examine the organs in the chest. Back to Alison Cluro. To take off the front of the rib cage and the breastbone, we're going to need to use some shears. Okay, so this is the inside aspect of this gentleman's breastbone, looking at it from behind as if we were standing inside his chest looking out. And what we can see here are these nodules on the surface. We... So just to describe those a little bit, there are some little bumps. They're between a few millimetres and maybe up to a centimetre across. They're white and there are lots of them. It's almost like a rash, like a yes. chickenpox yes. rash, but on the inside. Yes. What is that? It's a tumour of some form. I'm not sure what tumour yet. I would need to look at it down the microscope. Do you think that the, the history of asbestos might be relevant? It's possible, but this could also be a metastatic tumour from another malignant process. It doesn't have to be asbestos-related. Right, so... This is the heart. This is a heart. And, and, and it's and very big. It's a huge heart, much bigger than if you were to buy a heart from the butcher's shop. You often buy a, a beef heart or an ox heart. The heart is made up of four chambers, two ventricles, the big pumps, and two atria, sort of the smaller pumps, really. Now, all of the chambers of this heart are dilated. So this is a very big heart. It actually weighs 610 grams. So and a normal would be half that, wouldn't it? 300, 350 for this sort of sized person. Mm. 
So I'm going to open up the heart now and we're going to have a look into the chambers, particularly looking at the valves that help with the blood flow through the heart. I've taken these cross sections through the heart, like slicing an orange and looking at the segments. The most striking thing is that the actual chambers of the heart are very large. Why does that happen? Because the arteries that supply the muscle of this heart may well be narrowed and those blood vessels are just not able to supply as much blood as we would like to see. The other striking thing that perhaps I should mention is that although the ventricular chambers and the atrial chambers are quite dilated, the heart muscle is quite thickened and it's very, very marked on the right side here. That is at least a centimetre in thickness, that right side, and that's much too thick for the right side. Two or three times bigger than it should be, isn't it? Two or three times bigger than it should be. And likewise on the left even here, we're almost up to two centimetres in places. So this is a big, meaty heart, but it's failed and so it's then become baggy and you can imagine that that's not going to work as an effective pump to force blood around the body. So what I've got left now, having removed the heart, are the neck structures and the arch of the aorta. Now the aorta, if you remember, is the great big artery that feeds blood around the body. This is the big blood vessel. It comes off the top of the heart. It curves and does almost 180 degrees, like a U-turn, to then go down the body. That's what we've just opened up. And the first bit of it looked okay, but this bit doesn't look so good. And we've got these great big yellow uh, hard plaques which have got calcium in them. So this confirms the fact that this gentleman does have quite significant atheroma hardening of the arteries. And you can perhaps hear the calcium there. There is quite literally a stone in the wall of the artery. And that's classic for someone having hard arteries. Exactly. James, it really was striking how hard those arteries were. Why should arterial disease end up with calcium like that? One of the ways that the body tries to heal this uh, long-standing inflammation is actually by laying down calcium exactly the same as would happen in, in a bone after a bone fracture. So why should this healing process actually be bad news? Most of the time the, the, the calcification of the arteries is a good thing. The body does succeed in stopping the inflammation happening within the arteries. Sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't, and the calcification itself can lead to problems such as heart attack and stroke. So the plaque within the artery uh, ruptures and the fatty gruel that's built up within the artery wall over many years is suddenly exposed to the blood flowing right past it, and this can trigger immediate formation of a blood clot within the artery. And if this happens in an important artery, like an artery supplying the brain with blood or the heart muscle with blood, then you get downstream restriction of blood flow to that organ, and you get a heart attack or a stroke as a result. James, the other thing we found was what Alison described as a very baggy heart. It was extremely large. Why does it look like that and how does that relate to this diagnosis of heart failure? This is because there's long-term high blood pressure which has caused thickening of the heart muscle as you would if you worked in the gym on your biceps. The muscle mass of the biceps would tend to increase and this has happened in this patient. But the other thing in in this uh, gentleman is that, as I said, the arteries are hardened so the uh, blood supply to the heart muscle is reduced and has probably been reduced over many years and this causes the heart to start to experience what we call heart failure whereby the chambers of the heart actually get larger and unfortunately the pumping power of the heart even though it's more muscle bound actually gets lower and lower and lower 
as time goes by. So despite being a bigger heart, initially that probably would have helped to overcome the fact that this guy had high blood pressure. Eventually, the chronic deprivation of oxygen and blood flow to the heart and the ongoing problems like hard arteries means the heart just can't cope and it begins to, to become bigger. Exactly. So initially the uh, compensation that you've described, the heart becoming more muscle-bound, would certainly have worked for this gentleman. But unfortunately, the heart can start to fail, and this is where we see the heart becoming extremely large. And Prina, when we looked at the breastbone, there were lots of little tumours that we highlighted. We said possibly related to asbestos. Before we speculate what the lumps are, how does asbestos cause lung disease? Asbestos was commonly used in building about 40 years ago. We don't use it so much now. It's banned. It's It's a mineral, isn't it? You dig it up out of the ground. Exactly. So it's a a mineral with silica. Um, It's just a very heat-resistant, durable and quite useful material because you can mix it with other things. So So it's concrete, but that doesn't give us cancer. So what's the difference in the distinction? It can become a, a dust, which, once it's inhaled, can migrate into the lungs and you can't break it down. So it just sits there and it can precipitate inflammation in the lungs. So it's the fact that it's very small, gets very far into the lung, but then doesn't get out again, that you get cycles of inflammatory damage. Exactly. The body recognises it as a foreign body, but can't break it down. And so then that can drive mutations and form tumours. And someone who has had a lifetime exposure of asbestos and might be developing one of these asbestos-linked diseases, what sorts of symptoms would they have? There's a long lag time from asbestos exposure to developing an asbestos-related condition. How long? So for the cancers, it's in the range of 20 years. For the fibrotic conditions, it may be longer, 40 years after the exposure. But symptoms may include breathlessness, chest pain, a cough. They can be quite vague symptoms and people may not realise for quite a long time before they present for medical attention. Now we know how asbestos can cause tumours, it's time to turn to the lungs to see if they are the source of all of these metastases. Back to the mortuary. So what I have here is the thoracic organs and what you're seeing me do at the moment is I'm just opening up his gullet Uh, to make sure that there is no food in there. And then I'm just opening up his voice box, the larynx. And then beyond the voice box, we're going into the windpipe or trachea. And then it splits, it divides into two, one going to one lung and one going to the other lung. These are the bronchi. And in fact, in this gentleman's right main bronchus, we have pus. The fact that you can see pus there, that's immediately telling us that, that there's something wrong with this person's lungs. Absolutely. The other thing that I can see are more of these white nodules that we discussed uh, on the lining of the rib cage, And you can see more of them on the surface of the lung here. This person's lungs are about football-sized, aren't they? If we were to put the whole block of tissue together, it's about the size of a football. Are they very heavy? They're unnaturally heavy. Sometimes lungs fill up with fluid because the heart isn't working to pump fluid away from the lungs. And it's like a very wet sponge that's soaked soaked up with water. And if you look now, 
as I just press the lung tissue, there's lots and lots and lots of fluid. It's frothy. It's frothy. It's pouring out of the lung tissue. And if that lung was full of fluid instead of being full of air, it, it would have meant that the lung didn't work as well as it should do. He would have been short of breath. Absolutely. So he's going to be having trouble breathing, and that's all a consequence of his heart failure. Anything jumping out at you at this stage that you can see... Uh, not a great deal at the moment. Uh, there does appear to be a suggestion of some um, infection, which actually, looking at now closely, having touched it, I wondered if it was infection, but now I can see that it's a plaque. It's a white plaque of tissue. Uh, that is very typical of the sort of plaque one might see uh, in asbestos exposure. So I'm just going to move on to the vessels of the lungs and cut down there... These are the arteries and the veins that bring blood to and, and from the lungs. Why are you interested in the vessels? Uh, well, I'm particularly looking for evidence of pulmonary embolism, that is blood clots to the lungs, particularly because of two reasons. This gentleman has evidence of swelling of his lower legs. That increases the predisposition to blood clots developing in the veins inside the calf muscles of the leg. But also he has a disseminated malignant process which also makes the blood more sticky and therefore increases the risk of you developing blood clots. And I can't see any evidence of that. Now I'm going to slice these lungs because I can feel some large lumps inside the lung In both of them? In both of them. As I open it up, you can see at the very top part of the left lung, there's this great big cream and pink mass. It's about the size of a, an apple, and this is a tumour. The rest of the lung tissue is pinky brown. There's some blackness, which I presume is carbon, which is in there from this person's perhaps they've been a smoker. But there is this very well-defined, big, round, apple-sized blob. Uh, now, what I'm most interested in is this... Now cutting the other side is another lump of tumour, which I had actually thought was within the lung, now thinking it might be a lymph node that's got tumour in it. Lymph node being, these are our glands, where they, they drain fluid away from different tissues, and so if cancer breaks away from one place in the body, one of the places it can go is into these glands. That's right. Now we also have a bit of pus so um, we have got a little bit of uh, what I think would be a bit of bronchopneumonia developing here. Not surprisingly, because we've got this great big tumour, and I think given that location is likely to be a lung adenocarcinoma, and I think that although sometimes they can be associated with exposure to asbestos, they're also not uncommon in people who have a history of smoking. Dr. Alison Cluro. So a number of pathologies there. We've got these frothy lungs. We have an apple-sized cancerous tumour. And also a lot of black carbon was visible in the lungs. So let's start there. Uh, Prina, how do you end up with black lungs if you smoke? Cigarette smoke has lots of different chemicals. And there's over 700 different chemicals in cigarette smoke, including tar. So if you chronically smoke, you will get deposition of those But don't the lungs clean themselves out? They do, but smoking in itself can damage the cilia, which are these little hair-like structures in the airways, which allows it gives a mechanism to clear things from your lungs. If you smoke, it damages those cilia, and so you can't clear it. So it's a bit like um, the cleaners all going on strike and no one to empty the rubbish bins, so stuff just accumulates. And the accumulation of the stuff then accelerates other sorts of diseases 
and disease risk, I suppose, things like cancers. Yes, exactly, cancers. And equally, this gentleman has COPD and that has also been shown to cause damage to the cilia and inflammation within the lungs, which may have also predisposed him to tumour development. And Hugo, the spread uh, from this, what we presume to be the primary cancer in the lung, around the body, both to the gland tissue and to the liver, does that fit? Uh, that would be absolutely a uh, classic characteristic of the way that lung cancer would affect uh, the body, spreading both through the lymphatic system to lymph glands and through the bloodstream to others, other areas. And he didn't have a known history of lung cancer when we reviewed his notes. Is this a pretty common thing to just discover like this? Well, it is certainly common that lung cancer is uh, advanced at the time that is diagnosed. Why? Well, there's a combination of features. The first thing is, of course, that the symptoms can be quite non-specific. So most of us would get a cough and wouldn't think too much of it. Often the tumour has to be quite large before it will give you the more serious symptoms that one would get. For example, pain, coughing up blood, which is a very important symptom. For a tumour to actually cause uh, you to cough up blood, often they're quite large cancers. And by that time, often it's, it's much more difficult to, to treat them. On the other hand, from the, the amount of disease that this man has, I would be surprised if he wasn't having some symptoms from it. And I think you know, it would be interesting to know whether for the few months before uh, his death he actually did have symptoms which in retrospect would have been attributable to his lung cancer. Prina, Alison used the word bronchopneumonia. She said there was some pus coming out of the airways and this gentleman had clearly had some signs of infection. What is bronchopneumonia? So pneumonia is an infection within the lungs. It is usually due to either a bacteria or a, a virus in a, on occasion. We breathe these things in all the time. The lungs can usually clear them, but in some cases that can cause an overwhelming infection. And then in, an, in a bid to try and fight that infection, there'll be lots of inflammatory cells coming into the lungs, and so that causes a build-up of pus. And bronchopneumonia is infection within the main airways. Would the cancer this gentleman had have made it more likely for him to develop that condition? Yes, for a number of reasons. As he's got cancer, his immune system may have been suppressed. Equally, it's possible that there may have been a tumour deposit that was affecting the clearance mechanism of the lung. And equally, we already heard that he probably had steroid treatment as well. So all those three factors could have contributed. Because steroids reduce your immune response, don't they? So that would increase his risk of succumbing to an infection. Yes, exactly. What about the fluid? These lungs, because I, I picked them up, they are very, very heavy, twice, three times the weight they should have been. Mm -hmm. Where was all that fluid coming from? Because of his heart failure, you will get a back pressure in the blood vessels in the lungs and they, they will become leaky just like as his legs are swollen you will get fluid leaking into the lungs for the, that same reason equally because he's got infection that may have made his blood vessels a bit more leaky as well. And Hugo one of the things that we didn't find here but Alison specifically went looking for was a pulmonary embolus a blood clot that lodges in one of the main blood vessels supplying lungs and she made the point that people with cancer are more likely to suffer from what she dubbed sticky blood. What's the background and basis of that? So there are a number of reasons why people with cancer are more likely to have blood clots. 
Um, and those range from a, a local effect from actually a cancer in the pelvis, which is pressing on a blood vessel and reducing the flow. And that means when the flow in the blood vessel is less and slower, it's more likely to sludge up and clot. To the fact that patients with cancer, people with cancer, often don't eat and drink very well and can get very dehydrated. And that's another thing which, again, makes their blood more likely to sludge up. Uh, and finally, actually, some of the treatments that we use for cancer themselves can make the blood more sticky, more likely to clot. So there are a number of reasons that we do see, not infrequently in people with cancer, blood clots either in the veins, uh, lower down in the body, or in the lungs. So the patient may well have had sticky blood, but there was no sign of a blood clot. So what, in Alison's opinion, was the cause of death? I think, at the end of the day, that the cause of this man's death is a combination of different pathologies. And then teasing out how we prioritise those to give a proper and accurate cause of death on the death certificate is the issue that we now faced with. And in my view, looking at the degree of fluid in this gentleman's lungs and the presence of the superimposed infection in his lungs, those are going to be his primary cause of death. I think, in fact, he has died as a consequence of bronchopneumonia, secondary to heart failure, as a consequence of ischemic and hypertensive heart disease. However, he is also a very unwell gentleman because we know that in the background of all of that, he's got lung cancer which appears to have spread to his liver. So I will give the cause of death as bronchopneumonia arising on a background of ischemic and hypertensive heart disease. And under number two on the death certificate, we will put down disseminated lung cancer and also diabetes. So James, now you know the verdict, what do you think? Uh, well, I think I'm not, I'm not surprised by, uh, by the verdict. We've been building up. I think, to this sequence of events, this diagnosis for some time. So this would explain the patient's dying. He had a number of serious illnesses, uh, some of which had relatively uh, recent onset, like the pneumonia, but some of which I think had been present for a long time, such as the heart disease. Hugo? Um, well, I agree with that. Well, I think what I think is interesting about this gentleman is actually how many different things he had wrong with him, which apparently nobody knew about. Uh, and I think that does uh, ask the question about how often we actually do ask our doctors about the symptoms that we have. When I was at medical school, on the front of one of the handouts, very memorably, it said, a healthy patient is one who has been inadequately screened. <laughs> and it's absolutely true here, I think, isn't it, James? And no, it is. You're right. I don't know if this patient lived alone. Uh, that might be an important factor, whether he had actually been uh, complaining of or he had nobody of, to, to complain of any symptoms too. But yes, he, he seemed to have multiple things wrong with him, which unfortunately culminated in his dying. Now, everyone sitting here has the benefit of all of the technologies that hospitals can bring to bear to solve a problem. Blood tests, scans, we've talked about many of them. If you're a general practitioner, though, which is the individual to whom most cases will present in the first instance because that's who they have a relationship, they can't get to see one of you guys until they've actually been to see a GP. They don't have access to these sorts of things, Helen. No, I think it must be incredibly difficult. GPs are great. They have to deal with everybody who walks in through the door. And some of these symptoms, as Prina said, it can be nonspecific. 
if someone's breathlessness with known lung disease, you may not think it may be anything else if that's the only symptom. So I think they have a very difficult job unpicking everything. We can call colleagues up very easily on the telephone within the hospital. As you say, we have access to blood tests and scans. You know, GPs have to refer. Um, there may be delays. So I, I think primary care has a very difficult job in teasing out all the different things that patients can present with. Prina, you're the respiratory person. And it did turn out to have a very important bearing on what happened here because ultimately we think that's why this person died. But there was a lot more to it than just having a chest infection in this instance. I think he had clearly had many different medical problems and going through the post-mortem, much of what we saw in the first external examination is explained. The clobbing is certainly explained by his lung cancer um, well, it was you at the beginning who said, well, I think something else is going on because we can't explain on the basis of the history why he's got that. Yes, yeah, so that certainly had a bearing. But I, uh, I think also you could see from his heart failure and his COPD that he had many reasons to be breathless. So that might explain why he didn't perhaps present with his lung cancer as well, because many of the symptoms he had may have overlapped with his other conditions. Now, what all this appears to highlight is the importance of a post-mortem. This is an area of medicine that's said to be often overlooked. Susie Lishman again. I don't think we can underestimate just how valuable post-mortems are. And I think people often believe that because we now have very sophisticated scanning equipment and we can do lots of tests before people die, that we can't find out anything about them or about their disease after death. And repeated research has shown that that's just not true. We know that around a quarter of post-mortems find really significant findings that may have made a difference to the way in which that person would have been treated uh, had they been known about before their death. How many people are having post-mortems now? Um, around 200,000 people a year have a post-mortem at the request of the coroner. And we know that the vast majority of post-mortems done in this country are uh, coroner's post-mortems. And only a very small number are done at the request of the doctors or the family. Um, so the numbers have been falling, particularly these consenting post-mortems have been falling for some time. And there's a real problem with that because... The coroner's job is just to find out why somebody died, as well as who they were, where they died, and just some, some basic facts like that. Whereas a consented hospital post-mortem can really go into much more detail and give the family much more information about what happened to their loved one and the effects of any treatments they might have had and whether there are any implications for the surviving family. And why have numbers fallen? I think it's a combination of things. I think partly... People don't think that it's necessary anymore because people have had scans and they think they've got a definite diagnosis before death. So um, they don't think there's any point and nothing else will be gained. And I don't think that's true. I do think there's an aversion to having post-mortems because of misconceptions that they're not respectful and dignified procedures and that people feel when somebody's died that they don't want to put them through anything else. Um, and also, I think hospitals are coming under increasing pressure to do more and more work with fewer and fewer people. And so there are not enough pathologists with enough time to dedicate to doing more and more of these post-mortems. So they're one of the first things to go when the pressure goes up. When you say there are not enough people doing this, what's the evidence for that? Have we actually got a drop in the number of trainees going into pathology as a specialism? 
the numbers of people training in pathology has stayed relatively constant, although we believe that we need more people than we currently have allocation for. Pathologists now no longer have to do postmortems as part of their final qualifying exam, um, and that was introduced because we knew that in a lot of departments, pathologists never did a postmortem again after they became consultants and after they qualified. And so there was no real need for them to learn those techniques if they weren't going to use them again. So we know that a, a percentage of trainees are no longer training to do those postmortems. But actually, that's not really why the number and the, of people available to do them is falling. It's really because of the other pressures on people who are perfectly capable and trained to do postmortems who just don't have time to do it. Perhaps their hospitals um, have said that it's not a priority for them and they're so busy making diagnoses for the living uh, and there are so many targets, for example, to diagnose cancers quickly that postmortems have really lost out and aren't being valued for the benefits that they can provide. And what's going to be the impact of that downstream? I think there's a real worry that... Um, the post-mortem service, and by that I include the coronial service because it's the same doctors providing both uh, types of post-mortem, that it will collapse in some areas, um, that if you haven't got enough people who are able or willing to do post-mortems, then the service can't be provided. And of course, that's bad news for relatives um, because they're not getting the answers they need and they're perhaps not getting them as quickly as they ought to. Susie Lishman from the Royal College of Pathologists. And thank you to our other contributors, Hugo Ford, James Rudd, Helen Simpson, Prina Ruparelia and Alison Cluro. We're also very grateful to the family of the deceased who gave their blessing for us to make this programme. The production was by Greer Jackson. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.